those of you who responded. I like it when people respond. The mic is on. All right. Um, in just a few moments, we're going to read another lesson from the New Testament, Acts chapter 14, verse 1 to 7. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's on page 790. A few Sundays ago, Sean preached on the theme, the spirit of the mission of God. And then he preached on the message of the mission of God. And then last week, Matt preached on the mission of God and opposition, how it handles opposition and how it keeps moving forward. This is what we've been concentrating on these past few weeks at Res. If you are new here, my name is Solmane Megadi. I am a member of the church here. And today, we're going to continue with the same theme of God's mission and look at how God's mission by his word interacts with its opposition, overcomes it, and just keeps going. And we're going to do that by looking at Acts chapter 14, verse 1 to 7, and connecting that passage with all the passages that have been read already. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we seek um, your grace and mercy because that's the only way that we can receive from your word and have it change our lives. We are unworthy of it any other way. And so we ask that you speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the Energizer Bunny? Yes, I'm not the only one. I love that bunny. For those of you who don't know, the Energizer Bunny is a pink fluffy toy bunny with a large bass drum strapped to his chest, two mallets that he just uses to pound the bass drum, and then he walks sedately through every terrain imaginable um, towards some undisclosed location. And every, in every commercial that we see, something is trying to stop him. He has a power source on his right thigh, and that's the Energizer battery. battery. And apparently, the Energizer battery runs longer than any other battery that's ever been created. All right? Now, my favorite commercials of the Energizer battery sort of go like this. The rival company, SuperVault, convenes a meeting, and they're like, Gentlemen, this pink fuzzy bunny is killing us. The future of SuperVault battery looks bleak. And so they hire an evil maniac to get rid of this bunny. And so in order to kill this bunny, the evil maniac creates a meta-desolidificator to destroy the bunny. And so he's about to press the red button and kill the bunny, destroy the energizer battery, and uh-oh, his battery dies. He's using SuperVault battery. And so the Energizer battery, the Energizer bunny, escapes. 
They send King Kong after him. It doesn't work. At some point, even Emperor Palpatine enters into the fray. He senses a disturbance in the force. This bunny rabbit is a disturbance in the force. So he sends Darth Vader to kill the bunny rabbit, to destroy his battery. Unfortunately, Darth Vader was using supervolt batteries for his lightsaber, and it died during the battle. So the bunny survives. I love those commercials. At the end of every commercial, a voice says, still going. Nothing outlasts the Energizer battery. It just keeps going and going and going ad nauseum. The first commercial aired in 1989, and evidently the bunny is still going and going and going. In 2017, this is not a joke, this is really true. In 2017, the bunny was inducted into the Madison Avenue Walk of Fame. Do with that what you will. <laughs> like the Energizer Bunny, the mission of God often faces opposition, but nothing can stop it. It will come to pass. We read in Isaiah just now that someday, no matter what anybody does, the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of God, like the waters cover the sea. No matter what anybody does, that mission is going to be accomplished. Now, what I want to talk about today is the type of opposition we see in Acts chapter 14 and what God's mission by his word does to that opposition that allows it to keep going and going and going. So a little background. Last week, Matt preached from Acts chapter 13. And at the end of that, we see that Paul and Barnabas had great success at Antioch and Pisidia. And they leave Antioch and Pisidia when there was some opposition um, that arose against them. So they go to Iconium. Yet at Iconium, ah, at Iconium, they also meet opposition. And so we see from verse 1 of chapter 14 that they entered into the synagogue, right? And they spoke in such a way that many Jews and Gentiles believed. And I think there, therein lies the first opposition to the message of God, to the mission of God. God's mission keeps going in spite of our weaknesses, our sins, and our fears. And those three things are oppositions to the word of God. God's mission keeps going in spite of our weaknesses, our sins, and our fears. We know from Acts chapter 14, verse 12, that Paul was usually the primary speaker in these situations. And for the longest time, I used to think that Paul was a great orator, that he was eloquent, that he could persuade a crowd. And that is probably true, well, it's definitely true of his letters. But I found out that it wasn't true of his words. His critics used to say that his letters were unimpressive, sorry, his letters were impressive, but that his bodily presence was weak and his speech contemptible, that he himself was unimpressive. That's in 2 Corinthians 10.10. Paul himself said that he was unskilled in speaking and even if he was being modest, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we are told that he did not preach with excellence of speech or wisdom or with enticing words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that the faith of his hearers did not depend on him, but on the power of God. So despite this weakness, despite this lack of eloquence, God's word was preached in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. What happened? 
Well, I think that the power of the cross happened. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It was the power of the cross and the message that persuaded some of Paul and Barnabas' hearers. At the very heart of the mission of God is the power of the cross. That power is what continues to drive the mission of God. It's that self-sustaining engine. Despite our weaknesses, and sometimes because of our weaknesses, that causes it to move forward. But also in spite of our sins. Now, Paul was keenly aware of his sins. He knew what he'd done. He was a murderer, a zealot. He had hunted down Christians for, the very, for a very long time. And for a very long time, he was opposed to the way. But when the cross of Christ met him, it changed him and brought him back to faith, brought him to faith, and God used him to bring many to the kingdom. <laughs> In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. And later again, he says, We have this treasure the mission of God, the word of God, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So here's what's happening here. Our weaknesses and our sins, when the word of God, when the mission of God confronts it, it actually changes us first of all. So it's the word of God that we are entrusted to by God that shapes us, that molds us, that looks into us and says, this is wrong, this needs to change, this needs to be fixed. And then when it does that, God entrusts the word to us to steward it. It makes adequate the vessels that it needs to use it, to, to, to push it forward, to keep it going. Every time I start preparing a sermon, I get this sense of inadequacy. I wonder, what the heck am I doing up here? Why me? Because I think of my past sins, I think of my present sins, I think of my weaknesses, and I think, Somebody else should do this. I'm handling the word of God, something that's perfect, that's pure, that's holy, that's powerful. And I think it, it scares me a lot that sometimes when, when I approach this, I approach it with a lackadaisical attitude, like as if it was any other book. And if not for the mercy of God, I wouldn't be able to stand here and preach it. And I don't think any of us would be able to stand here to, to do it, to, to present it to other people, to proclaim it. But the word changes us. It molds us and shapes us so that we do become adequate to present it to other people. God is fully aware of our fallibility, and so he displays his power by causing the word to change us. So the word changes our, sees our weaknesses, sees our sins, plows through it by changing us. But there's more. Just from that, from Acts chapter 4, 14. Look at what happens after Paul and Barnabas meet opposition. In verse 3, it says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And then when the opposition decided to try and stone them, they fled, verse 6. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. Verse 7. And there they said to one another, man, this work is hard. This is really, really hard. Barnabas, 
we should probably stop while we are ahead. We should buy a condo in Ephesus and settle down because there's so much opposition to this world. We're not going to make it. Besides, some, it's God. Somebody else will do the work. He'll raise somebody else. Said no Bible ever. That's not what verse 7 says. What verse 7 says is that they continued to preach the gospel. Despite the persecution that was constantly following them, they still preached the gospel. Why? Where did this unceasing boldness, this drive to keep coming, to keep going, come from? Why? I know of missionaries and I know missionaries who are in very dangerous areas of the world. They're persecuted day in, day out. They fear for, they fear for their lives, but they don't run away. They stay and they preach the word of God. They keep preaching no matter what. There are situations here in D.C., and you might have been in one, where your environment is pretty hostile to you and your faith, and yet despite that, you consistently live according to the word of the Lord and you proclaim the gospel. What keeps you going? What keeps missionaries going? What kept Paul and Barnabas going? In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, and you don't have to turn to it. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The boldness to preach despite persecution comes by the Holy Spirit through prayer. It wasn't something that the apostles themselves could manufacture. Human boldness can only take the message so far. The culture that we live in today often prefers an invitation to silence. Don't say anything. Don't rock the boat. Live and let live. Don't disagree with somebody's lifestyle or their views on a particular thing because if you do disagree with them, it's basically you saying that you do not love them. So keep silent. The atmosphere is thick with this kind of thing. How do we live in this atmosphere and speak boldly? It is by the Holy Spirit. And I could say more on this, but I'll refer you to Sean's message on the Spirit of God and the message of God. So the word confronts our weaknesses, our sins, and our fears. What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we don't have to worry about what we need to say when God presents opportunities for us to proclaim the kingdom. The words will be given to us. And it's not whether we speak them eloquently or not that matters. It's that we speak them faithfully. Because in the words that are given to us is the power of the cross. And that's what persuades people. You and I have absolutely no power to change somebody's mind when it comes to faith. We have no power to change somebody's belief. That power is in the word of God. Second, we don't have to worry about our sins when we proclaim the message. And that's a, that's a weight off my shoulders. Grace covers my sin. It covers my sins. It covers my sin. And it not only does that, it teaches me to say no to ungodliness day in, day out, even though I'm living in such, even though we are living in such a corrupt generation. And lastly, I don't have to pretend to be brave. I don't have to pretend to be confident and courageous. I can ask for it. The Holy Spirit will give it to me. 
And that's how the mission of God by the word of God deals with that opposition within us. It keeps going and going in spite of ourselves. Second point. God's mission also keeps going in spite of unbelief. The mission will be accomplished. Christ's kingdom will be established everywhere and justice, righteousness, love will reign no matter what anybody does. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Unbelief can't stop it. But our individual inclusion into God's plan depends on whether we believe what Jesus Christ says about himself. Unbelief takes the non-believer out of the path of the beautiful, glorious end goal of God and puts them on the path to eternal damnation. And interestingly, unfortunately, unbelief can withstand miracles. The Lord in, in this passage was verifying the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through the hands of the apostles. And yet there was still unbelief in their, midst, in their midst. And this, of course, is not new. Just think about the fact that in the book of John, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And later on in that chapter, when he's telling them who he is, some of them walk away. The miracle didn't convince them of who Jesus was. <laughs> or what about um, the story of the proconsul in Acts chapter 13? The proconsul says that in Acts chapter 13, we're told that Paul and Barnabas speak to the proconsul Sergius. And what happens is that his magician opposes them. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says to him, be blinded for a couple of days. And then when that happens, verse 12, we're told, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It was the teaching of the Lord that convinced the proconsul, not the miracle. This is why Romans 10, verse 14 and 17 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe if they haven't seen any miracles? No. It says, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, I know that sounds weird, that the thing that you don't want to believe is the thing that will give you belief. But that's how it works. I mean, think about your own story. Think about it. How many times did you have to come in contact with the word of Christ before you believed the story? Sometimes, for some of us, maybe it was just one or two times. For others, over and over and over and over again, we had to hear it before finally we said, okay, we believe. For a lot of us, we thought Christians were lunatics, and sometimes we are, let's admit it. But finally, the word convinced you otherwise, and you came to faith. Let me draw attention to the passage in Luke chapter 16 that we read. The story of Lazarus. Lazarus and the rich man both die. One goes to Hades, one goes to paradise. And the rich man in paradise says to Abraham, please send someone to my family, to my brothers, so that they, they don't come here. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Believe them. If they have Moses and the prophets, that's enough. And he says, no, if somebody rises from the dead, they'll believe them. And Abraham says, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, the word of God, they will not believe even if somebody rises from the dead. And that's very interesting. Smack dab in the middle of the book of Luke. 
It's like Luke is saying, even if Jesus Christ was to rise from the dead, somebody wouldn't believe unless the word of God convinced them. It's the word of God that destroys belief. I grew up around miracles, left, right, and center. Some were real, some were fake. This was in Nigeria. In fact, we sold miracles. So if you want to buy a miracle from me, just, never mind. Uh, anyway, so we sold, miracles were for sale. And yet in the atmosphere of where there were many miracles, there was still so much unbelief, so much corruption, so much sin. Why? Because miracles don't change people's hearts. It's the word of God that does that. It's the word of God that transforms us. It is greater, more efficacious than any miracle that can ever be performed. And we have no idea whether the people in this passage, Acts chapter 14, remained in their unbelief. I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. Because in the first verse, unbelief was destroyed. Some came to faith. So the mission of God combats unbelief by the proclamation of the word. But this prompts us to ask a very important question. How do we proclaim? And here's where I want to, to conclude. I think that Matt gave a really good example last week. Um, and I refer you to his sermon. I won't rehash what he said. I do want to emphasize an important aspect to this proclamation because I think it ties in neatly with Paul and Barnabas' attitude toward those who opposed them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So gentleness and patience should characterize our proclamation. Very true. But also, and these are from various passages in Romans, Paul writes this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. John Knox is famously quoted as saying, give me Scotland or I die. That he prayed that to God often. God, give me Scotland or I die. He had a deep burden in his heart for his, for his country, for his countrymen. And when I think of that prayer, it haunts me. And the reason it does is because I don't think that I've ever said, God, give me Nigeria or I die. God, give me DC or I die. I don't think I have had unceasing anguish in my heart for anyone who doesn't believe. And I think that we're supposed to. I think that we're supposed to aspire to that. That when we see the unbeliever, we see them with love and compassion and an anguish because we know that their soul is at stake. And that drives us to speak to them with love and compassion. I look at the unbelievers in this passage. The first time I was reading this through, and subsequently as I was reading it through, I suddenly realized that when I, when I thought of the unbelievers in Acts 14, I didn't look at them with love and compassion. I thought of them as angry men and women who deserve a condemnation that I do not. I made them into other people. 
A huge portion of the most vocal Christian witness has decided that gentleness, love, and compassion towards non-Christians is antiquated, unhelpful. But this cannot be how we approach unbelief. <clears throat> this is not how Christ wants us to do it. Our witness has to have the flavor of anguish, of love, of desperation, of passion for the world. If it doesn't, then we actually stand in the way of the mission of God. We become an opposition. That because of our actions, the world cannot see the content of the mission. They cannot see the power of Christ. They cannot see Christ because of us. What is it that the world is doing right now that we could not have done? That we cannot do? What, where did God save us from? Was it not from the same place, from the same depth that he rescued us from? And I'm not saying that we should be docile and complacent either. We need to reject the invitation to silence, and we need to prefer an invitation of friendship, of dialogue, of understanding, and the invitation of Christ. We need to give that to people because we know what's at stake. The word of God is going to keep going and going and going. Emperor Palpatine isn't going to stop it. King Kong isn't going to stop it. You and I can't stop it. But the thing is, God wants as many people as, he, as, as we can possibly bring into the bandwagon to join us. Because it's a glorious end. It's a wonderful end. And to that end, if you are here and you haven't encountered Christ, and you want to know more about this glorious story, this glorious, unshakable, eternal purpose, I encourage you to search for Christ. Look for him. Seek him out. The story is going to happen. It's going to happen no matter what we do. The end goal is certain. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But he wants you on. He wants you on the story. He wants you as part of the story. So come to him. Come. Let's pray. You have made us into stewards of your word, and we recognize that we are inadequate to proclaim it, and we thank you that it changes us. We pray that with submission that you would continue to change us by your word, we would accept it, embrace it, and become, become the kind of people that reflect Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.